Happy holidays, everyone. It is a December edition of the Geek Roulette Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Spriegel. And I am the other host, John Lundquist. Hello, everybody. So, look at this. It's only been about a month delay between episodes versus what it was before. John, we are picking up our pace. We I know. Oh, wow. Don't get too excited, though, people, because, you know, stuff happens. Mm-hmm. This episode is what we're going to have as uh, one of our usual episodes known as a face-off episode, where John and I will bring up at, uh, at least a pairing of different things, and we debate which one is better. We have six topics that we'll do with that. Before we get to that, our housekeeping, we still got that social media. Get on there and tell us how much we suck. Yeah! Go be, go be social, everybody. By telling us how much we suck. It. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, the other thing, tell us how much we're awesome we are. Yeah, that, that would be rare, but yeah, we'll go for that too. You know, if we're exactly. awesome, then let us know. Booyah. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, uh, let's just dive right into it, John. Let's, let's go into, first off, our recommendations. John, what recommendation do you have? I am going to recommend for possibly the first time, although something that is somewhat timely, actually, because it's a fairly recent uh, board game release, um, and that is Ticket to Ride. I believe the actual title is called Legends of the West, but it's basically the Ticket to Ride Legacy game that came out, I think, just last month. I want to say, like, early November, mid-November it came out. Um, we got Ticket to Ride has kind of always been one of our favorite go-to games here at this house, so obviously the Ticket to Ride was a no-brainer for uh, the Ticket to Ride Legacy was a no-brainer for us. We got it in the mail, and then I think a couple of, like, week or two later, we started playing it. And the first day we played it, I think we played three, two or three games of it, which should tell you how much we enjoyed it. It's uh, If you're a fan of Ticket to Ride, I definitely recommend it. It starts out fairly simple with the same pretty much basic rules that you're used to. With regular Ticket to Ride, you only start with, and this is, I'm not going to get into any of the spoilers for the the legacy content, but the board only starts out with about a quarter of the country or so. Um, and as you play games, you build it out. And along with building out the country, you also get new rules, new things go on, um, and stuff like that. I mean, just like most typical legacy games, this one kind of does a few different things with uh, the Ticket to Ride stuff that you haven't seen before if you've played them. Um, But it's a lot of fun. I think we have played five or six games out of the 12 games that there are total when you play the legacy campaign version of it. Um, After you are done, you do get left with a your own unique copy of Ticket to Ride. I think it's called like 1901 or something like that. So it is a game you can keep playing on like a lot of legacy games out there. Once you're kind of done with the campaign, you're done with it. And you're just, you know, you're just left with a neat experience. Whereas this one, much like uh, Clank Acquisitions Incorporated, you can still play it afterwards. So it's kind of nice to get a little bonus after you're done. Um, But we've really been enjoying it. Like I said, it throws some stuff that you, you haven't seen, some stuff you're kind of familiar with. It gets obviously more complex as you go along. And the games take a little bit longer, but uh, we have been quite enjoying it. It does support up to five players, um, which I think is kind of nice. We're only, we're only playing with four, but you know you can do a fifth if you have a larger gaming group, which is kind of nice because a lot of those legacy games top out at four. So, um, yeah, Ticket to Ride Legends of the West is pretty awesome if you're looking for a good, uh, easy entry legacy game to try out. Confession, Ticket to Ride kind of bores me. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a light, it's definitely a more light board game. It's, uh, I'm actually teaching it in a couple weeks here at our local comic and coffee shop because it's a fairly easy intro game. Um, but that's kind of part of why we like it is just, it's an easy one to pull out when you're, you know, in the mood for a game and 
don't want to get too involved, but we like it. It's fun. We actually usually play the Ticket to Ride, the Rails and Sails version, which has like the Great Lakes on one side of the world on the other side of the map, and that one's a little bit different, but... I'm going to make my own ticket to ride. I'm going to make my own ticket to ride called Bank Robbery Jamboree, where basically you're just trying to rob everybody else's train. There you go. You can do that. Kickstart that bad boy. I will. My my recommendation, it's been out for at least over a month at this point. And it's going to be an interesting recommendation because of how I'm going to recommend it. I'm going to recommend Starfield. It's out by through Bethesda and... It's basically the space version of Fallout and or, you know, the Elder Scrolls series. But I'm going to recommend it that you beat the game and you play it again. And the reason I say that, and I got to be ambiguous not to spoil things, but when you play it the second time through, it almost feels better. And it's a hard thing to kind of explain, as I said, just because of the fact of the nature of the game. But part basically, you're a person who comes from a various background, and ultimately, you know, you become involved with an organization that's all about trying to search, you know, the stars for various things, and stuff happens, multiple factions. But the first playthrough, it was in a good, interesting playthrough. I'll say the ending of the first time around, the way the game ends, a little underwhelming, but. Playing it the second time through, there's a twist on it that I think kind of helps because I think the hard part about trying to play this game the first time is it's hard to understand sometimes what's going on. And I know that sounds horrible for recommendation, but the reason I say that is because games don't really give you tutorials anymore. Games kind of just immerse you and throw you right into it. And playing the game itself, it is one of those games that about a third of the way through the game, you realize, man, there are things I wish I could have done differently. And you can replay the game using your previous playthrough, and it changes it. So that that's my recommendation. I have heard good things about it, but I will probably never play it because aside from the Switch, I don't have a current-gen console. Mm-hmm. Well, that's on you there, sir. Uh, no, that's all right. Let's, uh, let's go to our arbitrary list. So... <laughs> arbitrary list with holidays coming up and everything's gone into full you know blown holiday mode you know you go to any store you're gonna hear non-stop christmas music hopefully you're not hearing wham's last christmas which destroys you and your soul deep down inside but you're also gonna I've, i've lost wham again already like a day into it i heard it last month it was like playing the day after Thanksgiving, so I don't know if that qualifies yeah. or not. I also heard it last month, but I don't think technically it doesn't start till December, but I heard it like the say like December first, I think I heard it, so yeah, I'm out. Well, that's on you. Yeah. But you're gonna see a whole lot of holiday movies now starting to hit all your streaming networks and T V and cable and however else you consume things. So I figured what we'll do is each of us will choose our own top two overrated and top two underrated uh, holiday movies. And, uh, you know, let's, we'll do this first, John, let's go through the underrated ones first. So I'll start out one movie. I feel that is very underrated. Well, I would say it's underrated in the sense that, I think it's a charming movie that does well, and I think it also came out in the time where really it wasn't the time for it. And what I mean by that is I'm saying a Muppet Christmas Carol. It came out in the 90s, 
And this is kind of long after, like, the fascination of Muppets kind of died off. Muppets had more of their heyday in the 80s and more of a renaissance in the 2000s. But nobody really cared about the Muppets as much, basically, in the 90s. And they made a version of The Christmas Carol with Michael Caine as, you know, Scrooge. And it was actually kind of an interesting, fun, charming little movie. You know, it's not the best movie. It's not the worst movie. But there is, I think, a warmth and fuzziness to it that I think it often gets overlooked versus other things. So I'm going to say first in a rated movie is The Muppet Christmas Carol. I have heard good things about that one, although I myself have not seen it. So, you know, which is weird because I'm a fan of The Muppets. Right. It just um, falls through the cracks. I think that's the trick with that movie is that it's just not thought of as much. Yes, indeed. Um for me, oddly enough, the overrated ones were kind of underrated ones were trickier to find for me because most of the Christmas movies I watch are kind of the more popular ones, you know, the ones that are, the, you know, your go-to, like your Christmas story, your Home Alone, stuff like that. Um, so I've got two, but they're, you know, they might be a little bit more mainstream or what have you. Uh, the first one I went with was Scrooge with Bill Murray. Um, this came out, I want to say, late 80s, early 90s. I forget exactly when. And based on the title, you can probably figure it out. It's a take on the whole, you know... Um, Ebenezer Scrooge story and all that stuff, uh, and I to, and also to be fair, I haven't seen this one quite a while, in a while, so um, so maybe I'm wrong, but I remember quite enjoying it. It's really well done, um, funny stuff in there. Um, before Bill Murray kind of went off his rocker these last couple of years, so um, yeah, Scrooge. I don't really have a whole lot else to say about it because chances are you have seen it because again, this one tends to be on a lot of people's list of their favorite Christmas movies. So, but that's what I'm going with. I have Scrooge as my other underrated movie. It was the early 90s, I think. 91, 92 is when it came out. And I think I think when it came out, it was a movie that was more there for us because in the time and era of cable TV, it was really like always overplayed a lot when you went through TBS or like HBO or anything like that. But again, I, I think it was, again, a well-executed executed movie. Does a good job. Murray does a good job in there. Heck, you got to even Buster Poindexter in there <laughs> somehow. He's in that movie, but all, all in all, I think the you know movie was a uh, very nice. Again, I think it's the key to some of your better holiday movies is like how well it, it can be charming without being too sappy, as well as you know being unique. I think that's the key. There is that you got a lot of holiday movies out there that are all kind of almost the same kind of cookie cutter type movies, like. You, I wouldn't say they fall directly into like the Lifetime movies or the Hallmark movies or anything like that, but they they become formulaic after a while. So, no, I had Scrooge on there, too. Nice. We think alike. Um, my next one is also kind of on that same Scrooge uh, storyline type, you know, type of storytelling, whatever you want to call it. This one came out last year, um, and this one, Mike, I don't know, you might give me some flack on this one. I'm going to be going with... Humbug for this one. This is with uh, Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell. I think it's on Apple Plus, which is you know possibly why a lot of people haven't seen this one. Might be why it's more underrated. We watched it last year um, and quite enjoyed it. Music. It's got a lot of songs in it. It's also you know it's got some pretty good funny bits in there. It's got a lot of heart to it. It's got a couple twists as well for the plot going into it. Um, But we quite enjoyed it. We just kind of figured on a whim. We had Apple Plus. We're like, oh, let's watch this because it was getting a little bit of hype last year. So we just kind of picked an evening one night, watched it, and everybody in the family quite enjoyed it. So if you have not seen Humbug yet, um, go check it out. It's pretty good. We liked it. Have not seen. Yes. 
It's that Apple Plus thing, I think, is probably why, because you will probably never get Apple Plus. No, too many streaming services. Although, on things uh, with Black Friday, they had tons of deals on like streaming services, and I actually canceled some of my services and re-signed up under different emails to... Uh, you know, get some good deals like nice. Hulu for ninety nine cents a month for a year, or uh, Peacock for twenty dollars for one year. Yeah, I think we did Peacock for like I think we did the monthly one where it's like two dollars because we want it because mainly just because we wanted to stream the Thanksgiving parade, and I was like, hey, two dollars a month for a year, we'll take that. Why not? I'm sure there's some stuff we'll watch on there. Boo parades! I hate parades. This is true. You are a well known parade hater. I am. Let's uh, pivot over to the overrated. So for overrated, first one, some people will probably give me some uh, shit on this one, but I I had to think about this, and if there's a movie I feel it's kind of overrated, it kind of gets a lot of quotes and everything, but this one, again, I think kind of falls into, you know, is missing one of the things that I has a requisite for the underrated. It's Christmas Vacation. I say this just because I know, like, oh, you know, Christmas Vacation is such a funny movie. But I think part of it, maybe it's just because Chevy Chase has become more of a well-known universal asshole. And it's not like Randy Quaid's done himself any favors either. But even if I were to separate the character from the art itself, it's not really that warm or fuzzy of a movie. Like, none of the Vacation movies are really warm and fuzzy. It's really weird because most of them are all basically cringe movies in some ways. You're cringing at certain things. You're not really laughing, and there isn't a warmth on it. And there's really no period of time that I feel I'm ever kind of rooting for, like Clark Griswold or anybody else in the movie itself. You know, the Cousin Eddie bits are kind of funny, and there's some little things here and there, you know. But it's just a movie that, as time's gone on, it's like everybody worships the movie. But it's a movie that I don't ever find myself going out of the way to watch. If it's on there, it's like, eh, whatever. And I'll still probably see what else is on. I'm not going to fixate on it. So Christmas Vacation be one of my top two overrated. Oddly enough, or probably not oddly enough, I have not seen it. Because mm. that's just my shtick, apparently. And I've never really had too much of a desire to see it. Like, every now and then I tell people that, and they're like, you need to see it. I'm like, yeah, maybe. So... I, I probably won't change that anytime soon. Um, my first one, I'm also probably going to get some flack for. I watched it. It's a movie that came out, I think it was another one in the 90s, um, later 90s, maybe even early 2000s, that a lot of people like. And I finally watched it last year, maybe the year before, and just did not get all the hype. And that movie is Elf. So um, another Will Ferrell movie. Yeah, that was about um, 2001 or two. Yeah, it was, it was yeah, somewhere somewhere right around that era. Um, but yeah, just, I mean, it wasn't that it was bad or that I didn't like it. I was just like, okay, I've seen that. It was fine. Like it just didn't do a whole lot for me. I mean, you know, and maybe it was because a lot of the bits had kind of been spoiled for me from seeing them on the internet or wherever over the years or just all the hype that had been built up for it of everybody. Like, oh my God, Elf is such an amazing movie. It's so funny. It's awesome. I watch it every year and this and that. And yeah, it just didn't really do a whole lot for me. Like again, it was, it was fine. Um, you know, Will Ferrell did fine and. Who's is it? Zoe Zoe Deschanel is yep. she the one that's in it? Yep. Yeah, like they were all fine in it. Like it just you know I saw it once and I'm good now. I don't need to see Elf again. It was it was okay. So yeah, come at me. If we were to do a top ten overrated, it'll probably be around that eight, nine, or ten range or so. It it is one of those movies that gets a lot of hype about it and everything. And I, I don't consider it a bad movie, but I don't necessarily consider it a good movie. 
It's just, I think, one of those movies that, again, it's more the star power of, I think, Will Ferrell that really pulls the movie versus the actual plot and everything else involved with it. Yes, indeed. What's your next one? So this one I hate. As Let me put it very clearly. This is a good, if not great, movie, but it is a horrible Christmas movie. And the reason I say that is because people always want to say or argue the fact that they feel this is a Christmas movie. It's Die Hard. Everybody, for some reason, it happens around Christmas time, so therefore it's a Christmas movie. And everybody gets that weird matter of factness about the fact that, oh, it's a Christmas movie because stuff and things. And I'm like, all right, as action movies go, amazing. Rickman's great in it. Bruce Willis, great in it. The guy that kept saying booby, that guy not so good. That guy, I'm glad he dies. Hey, I'm spoiling the movie, but yeah, he dies. But it is oh, a solid, it's a solid, a great action movie. It was a movie that maybe helped redefine action movies because it took away like the whole, you know, just huge muscular like kill machine. Instead, you got to like this ragged underdog like John McClane. But if it's overrated as a Christmas movie, it's because everybody keeps wanting to insist it is a Christmas movie. Ad nauseum, yeah. which it just gets so irritating. Like, it's a Die Hard's my favorite Christmas movie. It's like, you're just being that douchebag. It's a great movie and everything. But you don't, once they tack on that whole it's a Christmas movie thing, it's like, oh, no. Now you're just, it's the same like like way people like would go like nuts like 15, you know, 20 years ago about Chuck Norris. Like, oh, Chuck Norris is the big kick like the sun's ass. It's a weird level of, like, overhyped them, like, just trying to make something happen that makes me hate it as a Christmas movie. As an action movie, perfect. Perfect action movie. But it is not a Christmas movie. I don't care. So, die hard. Yeah. No, I tend to agree. The whole people that want to say it's a Christmas movie. It's a movie that takes place at Christmas. That does not make it a Christmas movie. Like that all being said though, like I don't have enough, I don't care enough to like try and dissuade people. If you know, you're going to come at me like it's a great Christmas movie. I'm like, okay, whatever you, you, you go on with yourself. Like I, I don't care enough to argue. It's with when them. they go over the top. Once they start going yeah. over the top about it and like, but it is because all right, nope, stop, stop. Let's, let's end this now. Yeah. It's like you said, great, awesome action movie. But it's a movie that takes place at Christmas time, not a Christmas movie. Get over yourself. Um, my next one is a classic. Is undoubtedly a Christmas movie, and it is a classic. Um, and I'm going with White Christmas. Um, <laughs> and not because like it's a bad again, not because it's a bad movie. It's a fine movie, but I think the reason it's a classic and that people like it is more just because of the music. Like I think it's not the type of mu- movie that anybody. Like, let's sit down and watch this thing all the way through and pay attention because it's got, like, this riveting plot. Like, the plot is kind of ho-hum. The plot, the, is, the plot is all based off of, like, deceit and deception. That's really yeah. what you think about, like, how much of that movie is about, like, oh, we're trying to save her in, and, like, oh, I'm trying to get these guys to, like, Mary, you know, Rosemary Clooney and, you know, Bing the hookup. Oh, there's all these things. It's really just a movie built on a bunch of lies when you, like, think about it. Yeah, and I think the only reason anybody like likes it and likes watching it is just like for the music, which you know, to be fair, is good. You know, it's got a lot of classic Christmas songs in there and a lot of other songs that are you know not necessarily Christmas themed that are that are just fine. But like, 
I feel like sort of thing you put on like in the background, like when you're decorating the house or you have like a party or something like that, and you stop like maybe once one of your favorite songs comes on, you watch it then, but then once that song gets over, you stop watching, you go back to doing whatever you're doing. Like again, it's just it's not the sort of movie I feel like anybody's watching because it's got this engaging, great plot. It's it's the sort of thing you put in because it's got a lot of awesome songs and good musical numbers and dance bits and and what have you. But like the as a movie itself, like it's just kind of meh. Like just yeah. Here, I'll go hipster. I like it. I liked it better when it was called Holiday Inn. Yeah. All right. Well, that covers our arbitrary list. Now we're going to move on to what we call our face-off. Now, our face-off, we have two or sometimes more than two different things that will fall into a category where each of us have three submissions that we're going to do here. And then based off of those are uh, submissions, then we'll determine, you know, what uh, what we recommend. Actually, John, did I give you all three or did I give you two? I think you did. I got to scroll back and find them. Because I'm looking at my notes. Oh, I see. I didn't, I, I didn't mark down on my notes here the third one. All right, I have it. For, forget it. Yeah, that's on there. Bad, bad note keeping on my end. All right. So the first one I'm going to bring up, uh, it's going to be because we're almost kind of in the middle range of it right here. One uh one Christmas staple that always shows up or used to always show up on like CBS and now Apple owns the rights to it is the Charlie Brown Christmas. Mm-hmm. But but if you go back a month or so ago, there was another Charlie Brown movie that's also equally loved, which is it's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown. So face off topic number one is this: What is better, a Charlie Brown Christmas or it's a Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown? John, I'll uh, let you go with your opinion first. I personally, I mean, I like them both, obviously. They're both classics. They're both great. Um, personally, myself, I'm going to go with Great Pumpkin. Halloween one for me is better. It's got a lot more, you know, a lot more good bits in there, I feel. You know, like the whole, I got a rock, and, you know, the bobbing for apples, and she, you know, poison dog lips, and... You know, the whole Red Baron stuff. I, I just feel like the, the Halloween one, you know, not to mention, you know, Linus out in the pumpkin patch with the, you know, waiting for the great pumpkin. I just, for me, that's the one that I like more. But, you know, I, I do like, like, if that's at like a nine, then, you know, the Christmas one is at like an eight. You know, the Christmas one is also great. Also has some pretty good bits. So, you know, it's a little bit more sincere, I think, than great pumpkin but uh but for me my money is on great pumpkin is is the one i like which i think is probably the way a lot of people would go about but who knows which which way do you fall so uh trying to debate the two right here i i i i'm kind of landing almost in the similar place as you i think one thing that's kind of left out in the open is how truly bizarre these two individual specials are um, starting chronologically speaking, I mean, when you really think about the great pumpkin, there's a few things that stick out to me. One is that Linus sits in a pumpkin patch, which isn't as so much weird. I think the part of that movie that always sticks out the most is how like at the end of the, you know, show, like Lucy wakes up at four in the morning and like decides to go see if her brother's in there, not her parent, not his parents, Lucy, as if she's had to do this multiple times before and drag him back in. Or the fact that everybody gave Charlie Brown a rock is like the most coordinated hate crime that you could possibly ever do to an actual kid. It's psychologically damaging. 
Charlie make sure, Brown. Make sure you got a bowl, bowl of rocks for that one kid in each group. Right. But what's even weirder is like when you think about then the Charlie Brown Christmas, I don't know who empowered I would assume a bunch of second graders. Is that what you think their you know age would be? I don't know who would empower a bunch of second graders to run a community Christmas pageant. It seems weird. Like who who's financing this? What's their budget? Like, hey, go get a tree. Where's this money coming from? I mean, it's just the weird absence of adult oversight, which is just the norm in the Charlie Brown, you know, universe and everything there. Between the two, I think I agree that there is, I think, a cleverness and a humor and almost a weird absurdity to it's the great pumpkin that sticks out more. I think the reason why a Charlie Brown Christmas probably gets a lot of hype and praise. One of the bigger things that it has going for it is the soundtrack by the Vince Guaraldi Trio, which is an iconic soundtrack. That soundtrack, you could play various songs off of that soundtrack, and people are going to immediately associate it with the Charlie Brown Christmas or Peanuts or anything like that. If you take that soundtrack out of the equation, it's just not as fun as I think the it's the great pumpkin Charlie Brown. So I, I will agree with you that I feel the great pumpkin Charlie Brown is probably uh, better between the two peanut specials. And let's not discuss the horrible Thanksgiving special where they give Franklin the horrible chair. Yeah. The Thanksgiving one is definitely subpar. Like I have a kind of a fondness for it because I think we used to watch it every year at my house, but it's, it's definitely not great. Well, if you watch a lot of the other Charlie Brown like specials, they're all actually pretty bad. I mean, like there's like a boy named Charlie Brown. And again, that one right there, there's just a lot of meanness and vindictiveness towards Charlie Brown. And I don't know the, the peanut. It's really, it's really, a, it's really a hateful bunch of kids. It is. I mean, this is like one of those like things that people like, Oh, you know, peanuts and Charlie Brown. Yeah. They're bullying the shit out of Charlie Brown. I'm amazed that he never snapped. Yeah, he might have in his later years. Yeah, we, we cannot verify either here or there between those two. Uh, going on to my second uh, submission I had. So just hitting Disney Plus uh, just a matter of a day or so ago from when we're recording this. Uh, the most recent and maybe final Indiana Jones movie just came out. And... I have not seen it yet. People I know that have seen it, one thing that's been a common thing about it is that it seems kind of joyless that Harrison Ford's cannot enjoying himself, maybe just going through the motions. Maybe that's the case. Maybe it's just, you know, the people who watched it and just their opinions. But it did get me thinking, like not not the the question isn't what role does Harrison Ford enjoy more? It's maybe more what do we enjoy out of the role. Who is a better character for Harrison Ford, Han Solo or Indiana Jones? Uh, I'll start this time, just since I had to go last time. Uh, It's tricky because Indiana Jones is where Harrison Ford is in a starting role, a starring role, basically, where he's the guy carrying the whole thing versus Han Solo is more ensemble and he is not the central focus point of the movie. So... I can see where some people could possibly argue between those two points right there that it's not a fair question to ask. But if we're going based on who's more iconic between the two, 
I, I have to be objective. I can't include all of the Indiana Jones movies after the last crusade because the one, the fourth one, the crystal skull did not like, that was a pretty bad one right there. It is. And I don't know if I can necessarily almost include the, the sequel trilogy of, you know, uh, the force awakens and the last Jedi or any of that. I don't know if I can include those, but I feel that again, like Force Awakens, Ford is you. You at least feels like he is having kind of some amusement of fun with it. As the strength of characters go, uh, even though he has less string t- screen time, I almost feel like I need to go with Han Solo, just because his you know smuggler with a heart of gold i think sometimes plays off a little bit better than indiana jones who's sometimes kind of an asshole uh in his movies you know to his romantic interests in each of the movies or just some of his other mannerisms i think he's more of an asshole he's maybe the vince vaughn of let's say you know action heroes in some of his movies where he can quip and stuff but I think I'll I'll go with Han Solo if I had to go between the two Harrison Ford uh, roles. Yeah, this is a tough one, and I, like I'm still not quite sure right now even which way I'm going to go. I mean, they're both kind of remarkably you know similar in a lot of ways. I feel like you know they're both kind of you know they crack wise. They're neither one of them are like super great at their job, so to speak. I mean, you know, when you look at everything that Han Solo does, like he's not really a good smuggler, you know, like he gets in trouble with Jabba the Hutt because he dropped cargo. He, you know, in a force awakens, he gets boarded by those, you know, I don't know, whatever they are, the pirate guys and the, you know, and all that. So it's just, he's just not a very good smuggler. You kind of get the idea of, you know, the, the feeling like he's not very good at his job. He's kind of just stumbling along and he, you know, he did good while he was in the rebellion, but he's kind of surrounded by greatness there. So, you know, almost couldn't help but succeed. Um, and Indiana Jones, kind of similar. He just, you know, he's not super great at being an archaeologist. He has, you know, he kind of screws up. And then most of the movies, I feel like him kind of fixing, fixing something that he screwed up in the earlier part of the movie or what have you. But uh, I think when it gets right down to it, I think I have to agree. I think I'm going to have to go with Han Solo. And that's not just because I'm a big Star Wars guy. I think just he's kind of, he's got more... I think of a character arc than than Indy does. I feel, and I have, and again, I have also I have not seen the most recent one. I saw that it popped up on Disney Plus the other day, and maybe sometime before Christmas I'll have to try and get that in. But uh, but Indy doesn't feel like he changes a whole lot movie to movie, um, you know. Whereas Han Solo kind of starts out as this, you know, he's this smuggler. Can we trust him? Can we not trust him? Is he going to do the right thing? Oh, he's leaving at the end of this movie, and you know, kind of looking out for his own interest but then he comes back to save the day and ends up sticking around so and you know the whole thing with princess leia and all that so i feel like he just he ends up being a more well-rounded character um out of the two and i think that's the way i'm gonna go is is with good old han yeah no i agree i agree so my last submission i had this one is not a choice of one or two but let us say four that we choose from uh, the reason I asked this question, John, is that I saw that there was a Kickstarter for a remake and a relaunch of like the old Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, Palladium Books uh, role-playing game that I remember we tried playing once when we were like, you know, in high school. 
we, we did, and we were super bad at it. Oh, absolutely, we were. Like, like I remember, we'd like we'd get like I'm going to get the class four heavy armor because you know it had like the best stats because of course it's like this heavy armor, but not realizing that you know if your character's wearing that, it's all bulky and super heavy, and you know it was yeah we were we were not good at role playing back then. No, 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 no. But uh, it got me thinking that Ninja Turtles they've been relaunched. I mean, they're almost hitting their forty year anniversary right now, John. That's how long they've been around. So it begged the question: Out of the four Ninja Turtles, who is the best Ninja Turtle out of the four? And you can encompass all the source materials in whatever you want to help make your decision. So, uh, John, I'll let you go first on this one. I've never been a huge Ninja Turtles guy. I haven't seen, you know, like I, I was a fan of the original run, you know, after the fact, you know, once it had kind of come out and was a big thing. You know, the original comics run is actually pretty decent. If you haven't read it, you should go check it out. It's pretty good stuff. Um, started as a Daredevil parody, if, if you weren't aware of that. Um, but never really got into the cartoon a whole lot and have not watched, like, I think I've seen a couple of the movies, maybe definitely none of the newer ones or any of the newer, you know, TV shows, I was always more, I think for me, it comes down to two of them. Either Leonardo or Raphael are the two, I think, that it would come down to. I was never really a big Michelangelo fan because he was always more the, kind of portrayed as like the the surfer dude one, like he was more kind of a bro. And that just never really flew well with me. And Donatello was always just kind of there. I didn't really like or dislike him. He was just didn't really do a whole lot for me. And I think out of the two between Leonardo and Raphael, I think... Leonardo's probably the one I would go with. He was always seemed to me at least to be the more level-headed one, whereas I liked Raphael, but he was always kind of more of a a wild card. I think he was always kind of, you know, a little bit more out there. So I think maybe I could relate a little bit more with Leonardo being the level-headed one. Plus he had swords, which, you know, swords are freaking awesome. Um, but yeah, I don't really have a whole lot to expand on besides that. I was, I was, I think Leonardo was, is where I would come down with Raph being second. And then, I don't know, Donatello and, Michelangelo tying for third and fourth or whatever. I I would say this. I agree. Michelangelo, I think the automatic one that I'm going to boot out of there just because just least amount of depth out of any of the characters in there. I would say that Donatello definitely, I think gets a lot more, uh, gets a lot more advancement as in terms of character development where he becomes a lot more interesting in like later comic versions that were published and everything. But, you know, I've been a, if I had to go ahead and say that, you know, I, I would eliminate it overall just because of, you know, again, you're right. It's probably between Leonardo and Raphael. I, uh, I'm going to pivot to Raphael as probably the, my favorite I do like the cool, calm, collected leadership of Leonardo, but I kind of like how Raphael is a hothead, and it almost feels like in many ways that Raphael has a firmer grasp of their situation. The fact that they are different and that they are freaks and they're not treated the same or equal to the rest of society I I get maybe where a lot of his angst and frustration and sarcasm comes from because maybe it feels like, yeah, he learned martial arts. Maybe Leonardo uses martial arts as a way to kind of, you know, balance himself and give him purpose. 
but I get a feeling that Raphael, in his sense right there, he does it as more of an outlet for his just anger and frustration of his own situation. So that's why I feel I could relate a lot more to Raphael between the two. Nice. As a quick aside, have you read the the last Ronin, which came out a couple of years ago? I started, but never finished. I haven't read it yet. It's one that I've kind of been on the back of my brain, like I need to just, you know, or find myself a copy and check it out. I've heard it's good, but I have not read it myself yet. All right. Well, John, now we're going to move on to your topics, your suggestions. So I'll let you uh, be the one that uh, presents them. All righty. This first one, I'm not sure where exactly it, I think I was just kind of sitting there trying to figure some stuff out and I'm not sure exactly how this popped into my head. Um, obviously with comics, there are quite a few different, you know, eras of comics, you know, it started out with the golden age where, you know, you got action comics, number one, kicking that off. Um, and a lot of the origins of superhero comics back then, moving into the Silver Age, Bronze Age. Um, I don't know if they actually came out with an age, an age name or a medal for the for the '90s. But the one, the two I'm thinking of comparing of that we're looking at are the the '90s and the 2000s. So like from 2000 up to about you know 2009, 2010. Um, which of those? I think those for us are kind of where, for me at least, where I did probably the bulk of my reading. I think in the '90s was kind of where I read, you know quite a bit that was definitely where i was spending most of my money you know at the time i think that's where i spent the most money on comics because i was you know i was young i was stupid i had a lot of disposable income and a lot of it went into comics um 2000 i was still reading quite a bit but it, you know tapered off a fair amount but it was definitely different eras i think the 90s were more flashy more art driven and the 2000s i think were more you know, art was definitely a big thing, obviously, as they always are, it's always going to be in comics, but I think writing took more of the forefront there, I think, in the 90s or in the 2000s. Um, and I think a lot just kind of went, a lot went on with the comic companies at that time. I think, you know, kind of right in between the, you know, the two the two eras, like right around the late 90s was kind of when you had the, the comics crash, you know, because the 90s was this whole... You know, a lot of speculators were buying just tons of comic time, which were selling like crazy, you know, like millions of copies for certain titles. And people were like, oh, I'm going to sell these and, you know, fund my kids' college education, you know, not really realizing that if a comic sells millions of copies that, you know, that's not going to be worth anything because everybody has it. Um, so eventually all those people left and comics kind of crashed and several companies almost went out of business, you know, primarily Marvel, you know, they filed for bankruptcy and that was when they sold off all their movie rights was to kind of stay afloat. Um, which I think would be another interesting conversation is what would have happened, what would the Marvel Cinematic Universe look like today if they hadn't sold off those rights at the time. Um, but that's for another day. Um, but basically, yeah, which one between those two eras for us, the 90s or the 2000s, do we prefer? Um, for me, I think... I think I feel a lot more fondly for the 90s. Like, there's a lot of nostalgia there, like the 90s X-Men stuff with Jim Lee, Chris Claremont, a lot of the the early image stuff, which kind of defined the era of, you know, flashy artist-driven stuff, because that was kind of their thing, was, you know, the big artists leaving Marvel and going to form their own thing. Um, I have a lot more nostalgia for that era, but I think when I go back and, you know, there's stuff that I want to read now, it tends to be a lot more of the 2000 stuff, where it was a lot more... You know, a lot different, a lot more. I don't want to say mature is quite the word, but just I think the the focus was a little bit different. It was not quite flashy action. It was a little bit more, I don't know, introspective type stuff. The writers had kind of taken more more of the forefront. You know, that was when a lot of your bidders like Bendis came into the forefront, Brubaker. Um, a lot of those guys, you know, Hickman and uh, 
all of them kind of just that was when they got their start and put a lot of their earlier stuff which was which was really good and got them to where they are today um so i think for myself i'm gonna go with the 2000s because again like i said the 90s more of a nostalgia thing there's definitely some good stuff there i mean you have like vertigo got its start there with a lot of the sandman stuff preacher um transmetropolitan which i'm not sure how that would hold up these days um and other things you know there, there's definitely some good stuff there but i think for overall for me i think there's a lot more quality more stuff i would tend to go back to i think in the 2000s as opposed to the 90s for myself so so where do you land on this uh, it, it's a no-brainer i mean i think for me it's easy to dismiss the 90s the 90s is what got me in the comics but i was also a younger dumber person and when you try going back and rereading anything from the 90s the writing just absolutely horrible the dialogue and everything i think what's you know both all the major companies are trying to do to make the comics relatable to their audience really came off as forced i mean especially when you look at image where all these artists which are amazing artists like oh we're gonna go write our own comics and guess what all of them basically sucked at it they were not good at it from the for the entirety aspect of it even thinking of like you know just like the early 90s in the sense of like the x-men and stuff great but again trying to reread through a lot of that still pretty cringy at for at most um it did get better as the decade went on. Some of that was because of Vertigo and what Vertigo was trying to do in terms of more mature, you know, character-driven comics itself. But that was definitely the the uh, outlier versus, you know, the actual norm. And I don't get me wrong here. 2000s wasn't much better because I think when you look at some of the Bill Jemis-era Marvel stuff, like the early 2000 Marvel stuff, that stuff isn't much better either. I mean, there was just so much, again, just cringy. I think that was where it was more like in-your-face shock value comics that were being written around that time. And again, just not sustainable. It wasn't until, I think, 2003 or four that you started getting a lot of your excellent writers that started to be showcased a lot more and gained a lot of their prominence. You know, Bendis with his Daredevil run, Hickman, you know, with his Fantastic Four run. You know, you had a you had a lot of like, you know, things like even image when you think about, you know, uh as an example, like how Invincible, Walking Dead, Powers, all of those redefined comics. So I I I can reread a lot of two thousand stuff more than I could ever reread anything of the nineties. Uh, the eighties is many times more much more rereadable when it came down to comics versus the nineties, just because you had a lot more again iconic storylines. But no, I I can't back the nineties. It's pretty bad. No, yeah, a few gems there, but they're definitely diamonds in the rough. And I do think, I agree, like what you said, that the, the 2000s definitely didn't start out great. Like, Marvel didn't have a whole lot going on. I think this was before Image kind of went through a shift. I think there was almost a time there where I don't think they went bankrupt, but Image definitely went through, like, an identity crisis when they were shifting from that, you know, we're going to be more of this weird, flashy, art-driven, still superhero-based comic company to what they eventually became you know, what they are now, but and, but what they didn't start until probably the mid-2000s was being more, really more focused on creator-owned stuff and more, you know, intelligently written stuff. And, you know, there's a lot more sci-fi stuff happening. They didn't do, you know, much of any superhero stuff. It was still there, but it was definitely in the minority, I think. Um, so, yeah, good stuff. Either way, well, except for most of the 90s, but there's some good stuff in there. 
Mm-hmm. Um, next topic I'm going with is I, I think this might have just been because I was sitting next to our bookshelf that had a lot of these on there. Um, and this is just in general. This isn't any specific, you know, one in particular. But uh, in general, the book or the movie of you know adaptation. You prefer the original written version of it, or do you prefer the adaptation of it? And I think you know, and this one might be something. This might actually be an interesting one. Maybe we do an episode where we go through a few different ones where we kind of compare the two two and see which ones got it right, which ones didn't. Um, basically, what do you prefer in general, the book or the movie? Um, tough one for me, I think. I think because I do like to read. I read a fair amount, although lately I've been doing a lot more audiobooks just because it tends to work more for my my lifestyle. I can, you know, read listen to those while doing other things. Um, I got a couple short stories in today while I was doing a bunch of stuff around the house. Um, and it's tricky. I think for me, I think I'm going to have to go with the book, I think. Although I don't, you know, that's not to say that I think the, the movie version, by and large, are bad. Like, I know there's a lot of people that just you know, swear up and down, like, oh, my God movie the adaptation is always horrible and i don't think it's necessarily always the case i think you can't look at the movies i feel like as strictly you know adapting you know word for word whatever it is whether it's a comic book whether it's a novel something like that you know it's more you know it's telling it for a different medium so you can't do it word for word and have it turn out the same way you know if you did it wouldn't work i don't think for a lot of them um so i think for myself i'm going to go book you know you get more depth you get more you know, obviously you get what the the author's original intent was, um, but I'm going to go with book, although obviously there are exceptions on both sides of that. Mm, I don't know if there are that many exceptions. I'll, uh, <clears throat> I'll, I'll say this, and it's funny because one of the people I'm quoting is also, there's a situation that kind of proves it wrong in some ways. But I remember reading back when I, Back in the early 90s, I got the unabridged version of Stephen King's The Stand, and he writes the uh, foreword for it, basically kind of explaining why is there an unabridged version of the book. But he brings up a point that's always stuck in my head, and this also, I think, kind of helps set up why books that are usually better is because he said that, you know, when he originally wrote the book The Stand, it was much bigger than what it was. But he was a younger, newer writer at the time. So his publisher was like, this is too big. Nobody's going to want to read this and everything. So he cut things out. And he said, you know, when he had the opportunity, when he finally got the fame and the clout to do what he wanted to do, he wanted to do a you know, unabridged version where he puts it back in there. And his point is, is that it doesn't make the characters act differently, but it does give better insight to it. And one of the things he uses as an example is that, he uh, talks about the original Grimm's fairy tale version of uh, Hansel and Gretel, you know. And if you were to go on the base, you know, baseline version of it, it's Hansel and Gretel. Dad brings them out to the woods. They get lost. They use breadcrumbs find a witch's house. Throw in the oven. Use the breadcrumbs to find home. But you know, if you ever read the full version of it. It gives you insight behind what's going on there. And the insight is the reason why is because their stepmother did not love the kids and bullied her husband into bringing the kids out there to kill them. But instead of killing his kids, he killed two rabbits, brought back the rabbits' hearts as proof that he killed the kids, which he didn't. He still left the kids out there to die and everything. But, you know, 
he explained it perfectly is that it doesn't change the story, but it adds a richness and depth to the story because you understand the context of it. And I feel that's why the books are always going to usually be pretty superior just because there's always things omitted from the books. There's always things that you sit there when you watch the movies and stuff, it gives you an idea and context to a lot of the stuff and it makes sense. Like, oh yeah, it, it gives a richness to it. Whereas when you watch the books or watch the movies, it's always easier to feel disappointed because there's certain things left out that you almost feel mad that a casual viewer is maybe getting cheated out of the experience in some ways because they don't understand some of the things there. There are some exceptions. Like, and I'll throw this out here because I just use Stephen King as an example. Well, Stephen King also, when you think about it, like one book adaptation of one of his stories with Shawshank Redemption, which is by far much, much more superior than the short story that was based on. That right there, though, is better just because there was more liberal interpretation of the actual short story to help build on it. And that's maybe a little bit different. It wasn't like it was a full-fledged story that became something else. This was where they took a short story, made it into something almost bigger and larger in that sense right there. But there is like another movie I can think of where <clears throat> even the author himself will sit there and say, yeah, the movie was definitely much better than my book, like Fight Club. If you read the book Fight Club, it's a good book, but the streamlined nature of the movie and how they end the movie versus the book makes so much more sense. And it's so much better in overall you know, delivery on there. But you take some of those and there's maybe one or two others I'm sure I could find out there. There there's not many times where I come out of watching a movie and like, yeah, that was better than the book. That doesn't ever really happen much. I learned to accept it, that this is the best I'm going to probably get for this in this type of situation. But yeah. Yeah. I feel in it, you know, for me, I almost think, I don't know if they're better, but I feel like the Lord of the Rings adaptations, you know, not necessarily the Hobbit ones, the Hobbit ones are bad. Uh, that's a whole other thing are as good an adaptation as you're going to get. They're not necessarily maybe better than the books, but they're pretty darn close. Like I wouldn't begrudge somebody who says they prefer the, I'll, the, the movies to the books. I'll actually say I prefer the movies to the books. That would be another rare occasion. That The reason why is because Tolkien's writing style is absolutely fucking horrible. So much made up words. It's so dense. It is just not a smooth no, read. It is a rough book yeah, to no, read. That's the one series like it kind of influenced still the way i read when i'm reading a series of books it's kind of still influenced the way I, because i when i originally read lord of the rings trilogy i did the hobbit first and then i did the fellowship of the ring and then i got halfway through two towers and i had to tap out like i'm like i can't do it anymore I, I'm, I'm done and i still haven't gone back to finish reading the original books and so now whenever i'm reading like a series of books i go through and i take i force myself to take a break in between in between books. So I'll read like one book and then I'll go wait, you know, I'll read another two or three books of something else. And I'll go back to this, that series and go back and forward. Just so I don't burn myself out. I mean, part of it, I'm sure was burning me out, but the other part is like, yeah, like you said, Hawkins writing style is definitely a lot more. It's a lot more work to get through. Like it's, it's, it's an acquired taste. I feel. All right. Your last. So one. For the next one, what do we got? What did I do next? I'm going oh, to make it easy. It's just a simple one-word answer. You you bring it, it up, is, though. It is. So my last one, I had to revive it because, like, I, when I did the original, we could actually do both of my number threes if we wanted to. Um, no, 
because my original my original third one was too close to your third one but my the one i came up with was i went with coffee or tea so so what's what's what do you got there coffee john it's hands down coffee the reason why is because coffee you can do so much more with and they're there is a much more greater flexibility to it. I get it where there's millions of variations of tea itself and everything. I feel that tea is more... What's the better way to put it? I feel that there's there's not many ways you can fuck up coffee. I feel there's many ways you can fuck up tea. Interesting. See, I would, and I would go the other way. I would say tea... Because there's so many different varieties, there's a lot you can do with it. Basically, <laughs> exactly what you said, only on the tea side of things. Like you know, you've got herbal teas that are basically your, you know your decaf tea, which have all sorts of crazy. Usually, those are more fruity. You've got your black teas. You've got your you know your green tea. You've got all sorts of you know. I, I, it does. I think, like you said, you need a little bit more skill when doing with tea. I mean, you can't just you know throw a tea bag in some hot water and and call it good. At least not if you want the good stuff. Um, when I'm more of a tea guy, I think if I had to pick one of the other, I definitely like coffee. Coffee's some good stuff. Give me some cold brew, um, whatever. Um, I actually mixed some, like, I did a half and half of co- cold brew coffee with some homemade eggnog yesterday, and that was damn tasty. Um, but yeah, I'm going to go with tea because I'm just, I don't know, I'm more of a tea guy. It's it's good. It's tasty. I feel like it's more, I don't know, more varied in the flavors, like you said. I think whereas coffee's basically the same base flavor. You can add stuff to it, obviously. Coffee is still more or less coffee, which not that that's a bad thing, but I feel like you get you get more variety. I feel with tea, coffee. <clears throat> uh, we'll just have to we'll have to agree to disagree. No, I hate that phrase, John. That's the worst phrase ever. That anytime somebody says agree to disagree, right there, it's like nah. Just, just stick to you, man. Th- that's like saying, like, I'm trying to seem like I'm being the bigger man by conceding to your opinion, being your opinion itself. But I'm basically like agree to disagree is the other equivalent of as per my previous email. I hear that and it's like, fucker, it's on. <laughs> I have nothing more to say. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, hey, that covers up our face up episode. And guess what? It was. And a nice tidy fifty-three minutes. Hooray! It's a little, it's a little baby episode. Not quite a baby. It's more a teenage episode. It's what an episode should be. Yes, exactly. Hooray for us! We're we're doing it, guys. We're doing it. So uh, to wrap things up, I'm your host, Mike Spragle, and I am the other host, John Lundquist. Thank you for joining us. Catch our next episode, which will actually be released within a month too. I know, that's right. We're going to have like, this episode and another one before Christmas, so hooray for us. It's a yes, Christmas everybody. miracle. Yay! Hooray. Have a good one, everybody. Bye.